All right. So uh, we've got some more people coming in. So if you've got seats between you, could, could folks at this end scoot over and sit next to each other? And maybe here, let's scoot this way. All right, because we've got more folks. There we go. Meet your neighbor. Hello, hello. And by moving to the center, you're also going to have a better view. So did you need this? or Oh, it's recording. Okay. All right, did everybody get notes? <laughs> what a day. Okay, come on in. Come on in, grab seats. Good job. Look at this. This is great. This is great. Okay. So I needed to break down and use the whiteboard today because we've got a lot to talk about, and sometimes pictures are helpful. So, so we'll be doing that. But um, from last week, if you were here, we were in Section 4 in your notes, and we didn't finish it. So we're going to pick back up with Section 4. However, we're probably going to get to Section 5 as well, which is over here. And so if you didn't get Section 5 when you came in, you can now take the walk of shame. I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> Jack, could you, gra could you grab some? And, and uh, Anybody? All you have to do is raise your hand. You don't have to take the walk of shame. Just raise your hand. Jack will give you some. Everybody got them? Okay, got one up front. Got one. The fours, the fours, threes, twos, and ones are out at the resource center. So if you, miss, if you miss any week, we keep extra copies out at the Resource Center. Wow, and, and Ruth has an extra copy, amazingly. That's great. Can't sit there. Yeah. <laughs> but come, come in. Come in, come in. Come in, come in, come in. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Richardson has a seat. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Hey, I've got good news this morning. Jesus is coming back. Amen? All right, now there's some details we're going to talk about. But, but let us not allow the details to distract us from the main thing, that Jesus is returning, and that that is our great hope. So, as we sit here, you may disagree with me on some things. That's okay. You are allowed to be wrong. It's all right. No. <laughs> uh, let, us, let us hold those secondary things in love towards one another, okay? That we're not, we're not here to, to create sort of uh, factions about what we believe about the millennium. Those already exist. Um, we're going to seek to understand God's word. I will tell you, I will, my goal is to present God's word as clearly as I can see it. And there are smarter people than me in the world, and I'm aware of that as well. Okay? Um, however... Christ is returning. Upon that, we have 100% confidence. He has promised it. So Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Amen. Amen. Um, okay. So last week, section four in your notes, uh, we began to talk about the second coming, and I made the startling statement that I do not believe that there will be a rapture of the church. And I say that is startling. Um, let me just say, it would not be startling to the church across the world today. It would only be startling to the church in America and England where this doctrine has persisted of a rapture. It would also not be startling to the church historic. Any Christian before 1850 wouldn't have known what you meant by the word rapture. All right? So, um, however, I'm aware that I am a pastor in America, and like you, was highly influenced by the Left Behind series and all kinds of, you know, stuff. <laughs> right. That wasn't, no, that was not a documentary. Good idea. Um, so let's, let's just, I, I, I thought to put some stuff on the board so that we could understand this together. If you want, you can draw along with me on the back of any page of your notes. Um, I think I'm going to hand out in coming weeks some diagrams for you to help as well. But I thought just to start by drawing and explaining and not having you distracted by diagrams in your own hand. Okay? So let's just think together. <laughs> let's just think together about the timeline between the Lord's coming and his second coming. All right? So we're going to put uh, the cross right here. Not that it is the beginning of history, but it is the beginning of the church age, which is what we're going to be discussing. All right? So the cross being a little symbol of Christ's first coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. All right? And then I'm going to draw a timeline here, and I'm not going to be putting dates on this timeline other than approximately A.D. 30 goes right here. Okay? After that, uh, dates become more difficult. All right? So this period of time that we're going to be talking about is the church age. There's many names we could call it. We could call it the age of grace or the time between the Lord's first coming and his second coming. All of those things are returning, are, are speaking of the same thing. Now, what do we know about the church age? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put two other kind of squiggly lines up here that are kind of not good things that are going to be happening throughout the church age. And one of them is tribulation and trials and difficulties. Right? We're told in the scriptures to expect that we're going to have tribulation. And so, so I'm going to get to whether that is an end time event or not. But I'm going to say that is a church age event for sure. Right? And so I'm, going to, I'm just going to kind of draw here in, in green. All right? And I'll do a little like thing up here. This is trials and tribulation. All right, and I, and I drew it in such a way as to say sometimes it's worse, sometimes it's better, but it always exists. Right? Sometimes it's worse for one, in one area of the world than it is in another area of the world, as is the case today, where we gather freely here and in other places in the world. Christians are not so free to gather. All right, so trials and tribulation. The other not-so-good thing, these are understatements, uh, that's going to be during the church age, 
is what you would call, what the New Testament calls, the spirit of the Antichrist. All right? So this would be from, eh, really, the, John is the one that saw this most clearly in 1 John and 2 John. He said, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Well, I tell you that the Antichrist is already here, already at work. And so, so you could think of the New Testament perspective on Antichrist is anything that is an anti-Christ. It's preaching a different gospel than the true gospel that is setting itself up as a God alternative to the true God. Those are, that is the spirit of Antichrist. And particularly, the spirit of Antichrist comes against the church. So it, it deceives the world for sure, but it's, it's a danger to those that would call themselves Christians. Um, if somebody is not following Christ, they perhaps are unlikely to follow Antichrist. It's, it's the one who's deceiving God's people. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Okay, so I'm going to draw that similarly here as a kind of normative thing throughout the church age. Okay. Now, for both of these two things, we do expect that there's going to be a kind of end times increase, I'll say, in both of these. So for the Antichrist, as John said, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. I'll tell you he's already at work. Well, guess what? He's already at work and is still coming. The man of lawlessness that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks of, he has to come first. And then Christ returns. So we, we expect an end times figure, a human being, who will in a way be the embodiment of the spirit of Antichrist that's been happening throughout the New Testament times and will whew, bring to perfection the spirit of Antichrist and will lead many false professors in the church away from Christ will lead to a great apostasy at the end. There have been many, we could have another line called apostasy, right? Of, of those who are being drawn away from the true faith, right? Well, as the Antichrist in the end times comes, it will, he will draw many more away from the faith. All right, so we would see a kind of spike. And that's called the Antichrist rather than just the spirit of the Antichrist. And in a similar way, as there's been trials and tribulations throughout time, we would see a spike at the end called the tribulation, as you've no doubt heard before. And so there would be a spike there as well. So if you're taking notes or if you're drawing this, if you want to, you could, you could label this as the Antichrist and the tribulation in their kind of end time fulfillment. All right, so maybe I'll kind of just do right here the tribulation, okay? All right, so then what do we understand about the Lord's coming? Well, that he will come here, <laughs> that he will come and and as it says of the man of lawlessness, slay him by the word of his mouth. 
So he, he will come in when, when, when things are bad and when apostasy is growing and as the Antichrist is at work, that's when we expect the Lord's return. Second coming. Return of Christ. Okay. Now, my whole purpose in drawing this was to give hope to those who I stole it from last week who had, who had had some hope in a rapture because you were anticipating the Lord coming and taking the church back to heaven. And I, I would want to simply, if possible, transfer your hope from the rapture to the second coming and to say, hey, don't worry, you weren't wrong, he is coming. Better news, he's coming to stay. But that's actually better news than coming to take us away for some period of time before he comes back to fix everything. He's coming, and he's coming to stay. And, and so what's going to happen at his second coming? Well, a whole lot that I would say would almost be a point in, at a single point in time. Um, so at least rapidly one upon the other, such that it doesn't fit into a timeline particularly well. When the Lord returns, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and what? And what? And the dead in Christ will rise first. So, what's going to happen? The resurrection of believers. Because it says, the dead in Christ will rise. Right? So, right here, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air is not a rapture. It's the welcoming party. And then we descend with him and he rules and reigns upon the earth. Okay? So we, would, we could have here the resurrection of believers. There will also be the resurrection of unbelievers. So, soon after that, we've got the resurrection of unbelievers. Then there's the final judgment as the Lord brings his rule upon the earth. So his enemies are scattered, his enemies are defeated, and the Lord establishes his kingdom. Now, some of you are about to ask me about the millennium. And I'll just say, we'll get there. There's multiple views on the millennium. I want to establish a basic timeline. And then we can talk about where does that go? What does that look like? How does that fit? So there we go. Okay. In the word rapture, the church would have used for 2,000 years. It's the catching up into the air to, to meet the Lord. And the church would have understood that to then return to earth with him rather than the question is, <laughs> is now a good time to talk about the Antichrist? The answer is, let's get a little further into today's notes. Okay, so the question is, will the, will the Antichrist come as a persecutor or as a deceiver? Uh, there's debate on this. I will say yes. So I think there will be a period of time, and this is scary to think about, where a charismatic uh, personality from within the church rises up and many believers follow after into what becomes increasingly clear heresy. Now, the way that the Scripture talks about this is, and he will deceive if possible, even the elect. 
And so I think at the early stages, some believers might be caught up in that, but the Lord will, will call them back to himself. But many false professors will gladly be running after him. So I would see that as a piece, but then it also does seem like political, a military, governmental style persecution of the church as perhaps later down that cycle. But, but yes, so both. Okay. And then let's talk about what we've all kind of heard about this um, because I did want to explain how the rapture is, is thought to fit in and why people have tried to fit that in. And they have tried with good reason to fit that in, even though I don't think it's a biblical concept. I understand what was driving the train. Okay? So let me, let me repeat the question by teaching the answer. So the question has to do with um, the church seems to have gotten it wrong over the years and called many things, many people, the Antichrist. To which I would say, yes, the church has gotten that wrong because clearly he wasn't, whoever that person was. I mean, it could be people that we don't even ever think about, like Napoleon. Everybody thought Napoleon was the Antichrist for a period of time, all right? Um, which was a kind of an understandable view if you were a Protestant living in the middle of Europe as this Catholic army came and swallowed up your lifestyle. Um, so, uh, it would seem from the New Testament's perspective, that Antichrist we should expect and that they will be at work throughout the New Testament age. We should be expecting an Antichrist. Um, I would be slow to use the language of the Antichrist. I don't mind at all using the language of an Antichrist. I think it's clarifying, especially for a pastor to stand in front of God's people and to say, don't follow that. That's the spirit of Antichrist right there. That, that's, a, that's a good and right thing to identify and do. Um, I think the, the Antichrist will probably not be uh, fully mm, identifiable until there's a little bit of looking back on his accomplishments. Um, perhaps still during his reign or time, but, but I, think, I think it's going to be, we're going to go, oh, oh, this is bigger than you know, it's got to be bigger than Hitler. It's got to be bigger than, you know? I mean, this is a end times thing. Okay. All right, so here's, let me, let me explain the, the rationale for rapture and what, what people have been trying to do. And there are passages in Scripture that talk about the sort of the fullness of Israel becoming saved. And so uh, there's one New Testament reference to that, which, I, which we can explain and talk about. And then there's a lot of kind of Ezekiel passages that talk about the restoration, a kind of end times restoration of Israel and of the, the, the nation of Israel, the, the Jewish people, a, an end times rebuilding of the temple. And so I, I, uh, I am unable to teach this objectively. Let me just say, I'm going to teach it from my own perspective, which is not neutral on these things, okay? So what I think is, is happening is folks are, are looking at, say, the book of Ezekiel, 
and they're wanting to see literal fulfillment of what God intended as symbolic prophecy. All right? So we've, we've talked a lot about this, that apocalyptic language is difficult to interpret and is full of symbolism. And so the question that we should bring to Ezekiel is when you talk about Israel being redeemed, do you mean Jewish people in the sense that it was understood in those days? Or do you mean the people of God in the sense that we now understand it after Paul? Paul, who taught us that not all Israel was Israel back in the Old Testament. True Israel was always those people who united to, to God by faith. It was never just a bloodline. Now, it happened to be that most people united to God by faith were within that bloodline. But there were a lot of people in that bloodline who were not united to God by faith, right? And so you talk about the Jewish people, and even from the very beginning, God made it clear this is not a bloodline issue, right? Like, Abraham had two sons, and only one of them inherits the promise. And then Isaac has two sons, and only one of them inherits the promise. And in neither case was it the older brother. And then Jacob has his 12 sons, and we get moving with the 12 tribes of Israel. But over and over again, they're just, we could say that for many periods of time, the majority of them were not following the Lord. They were not his people in that sense. They were not united to God by faith, which is the only way anyone's ever been united to God was by faith. If you wonder that, we go all the way back to Abraham, the founder of that nation, who believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the start of the whole nation. So, God's people have always been those who are united to him by faith. So, when I go back and read the book of Ezekiel, and I see, okay, you know, there's going to be a a restoration of God's people, I'm seeing the church age as the fulfillment of that. As all of a sudden, the gates of grace open. Christ has come. And the message of the gospel begins to be preached all over the world. And the temple is built. That is, what is today's temple? The church. You are the temple of the living God. And so, I do believe that we're, we're taking Ezekiel seriously and we're interpreting it rightly through the, the New Testament lens to say that we're seeing the fulfillment of that in the church age. There are some who would say, no, it needs to be a literal restoration of the literal Jewish people who literally build a temple. Okay, so how are we going to fit that into a Christian timeline. Well, here's the here's 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 what happens. So I'm gonna I can't do everything at once. We're gonna we're gonna assume a, a position here of a rapture before the tribulation. Those that hold the rapture have different positions on this, but the most common one is pre-trib. All right, where Christ returns raptures before the tribulation so here's the rapture he comes down and heads right back up doesn't make it all the way down meet the lord in the air 
and go to heaven. Right? So the church rises at this point with him. And so the church is up here during the tribulation. Then after the tribulation, the Lord finally returns with his people to establish his final kingdom. So here's the second coming. Now you would say, well, this isn't all that different. And I would say, you're right, it isn't all that different. All Christians, whether you believe this or not, should have a hope in his coming. Right? Now, for those that believe in a rapture, their hope is their first hope is in the rapture, and then their second hope that then Christ will return with them. That's not a bad deal. We're all you know, we're all hoping in Jesus. Amen. All right? But they do this because what this does is it gets all the Christians out of here and it gives a kind of time frame here for Israel to turn to Christ. All right? So that's what they're that's what they're seeing happening here is a kind of restoration of Israel, a kind of mass evangel a mass evangelism, mass conversion. Um, I mean, I would love it if there was a mass conversion of the Jewish people. But I think the reason they're after that is because they're trying to fulfill Ezekiel in this literal way of Jewish people being gathered rather than God's people being gathered together. Okay? So this is where we might say we'd have the conversion of Israel. Yeah, you know. There we go. Mhm. Mm so, I could get into I could get into a kind of uh unhelp we could we could unhelpfully focus on this, but I will point out the fact that that the support of Israel as a nation state today, which is the the normative Christian position in the West is support to support Israel. I'm not going to make political statements. I don't think it's wrong to support Israel. I am going to make a theological statement. I don't think Christians have to support Israel. Okay? That's a theological statement. In other words, Christians are, are, are called to love each other. We're New Testament believers. We're called to evangelize the world, be it Jew or Gentile. Absolutely. Pray for Jewish people, yes. And pray for all people, yes. And, and seek to evangelize, yes. Um, and if you believe that the Jewish nation is a kind of, you know, we'll say good political entity in the Middle East, and so politically you want to support that, great. But I would see a difference between our theology leading us there and our politics leading us there. Okay? You might disagree with me on that. Probably a lot of people do, and that's, that's okay. But I am pointing out that that concept of really inherently we're behind Israel because God is really does come from, from this reading of Scripture. I'm trying to say, mm, I don't think it's, the, it's, it's not the historic church's understanding of Scripture. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the question is, in the church age, there will be 144,000 Jews saved. Um, Revelation 7 or 8, 
so I'm going to wait. Because <laughs> we're doing two today. <laughs> I say that. I, 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 I want to, I am confident in, in what I'm confident in. I'm also a learner. And I, I, I need the time. I, I'm, not, I'm not just joking. I need the time to have studied that text and to say, yes, this is how it fits into what I'm saying. So, yeah. Thank you. So it looks to Sam as though this picture, uh, which shows the church being taken up before the tribulation and then Israel being saved, shows the church to have failed. I do agree that that's what this shows. That would be one of the reasons I don't think this is true. Um, the other is just this perspective has in mind that God has two peoples. Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And, and I would say that is anti-gospel. I mean, to me, this is not actually that peripheral. Like, God has one people. There, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. And so to anticipate a time when God rolls back the clock and, and converts a particular ethnic people is to roll back the clock on what Christ came to do. To, to me, it, it's, it's, it's a serious error. Um, but I'm also aware, as serious it is, as it is, that we were all taught it. This is like, this is a strange place as a pastor. I thought about this series, I thought about the book of Revelation, and I thought the easiest person for me to preach to is the one who's been in the church the least length of time. This is the only concept like that. You know, everything else, there's like this tremendous benefit from years of being washed in the Word. But in this, because we all are part of the, this culture where I think, we, I think we've had it wrong, uh, it makes it a little harder for us to kind of go, okay, wait. What am I trying to unlearn and relearn and all of that? So, yeah. Question statement is that the rapture would give great evidence that the Christians were right. Indeed it would. Um, and so, yes, I think you would see the conversion of Israel in that moment. Like, oh, remember that Jesus guy? <laughs> Woo! Um, so, yeah, I think, honestly, I think that's woven right into the, to the thought that, yes, that would be a spectacular thing. Um, and I would think that a lot of the world would get saved under such an event. But I would also push back. I can see that. I would push back and, and go back to the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man. When, when the rich man from, he, from hell is imploring, please send somebody back. And Abraham says, you know, even if somebody returns from the dead, they're not going to believe. And so... It's easy for us to think that the rapture would overcome unbelief. I think unbelief is deeper than that. It requires a supernatural work. It doesn't just require evidence. The evidence is available. It's the blindness of heart that's the problem. I, I don't know anybody that wouldn't desire this. First, we get to leave. That sounds great. We get to leave. Second, Israel gets converted. Like, both of those are, and, and this is the bigger one by far. 
Like both of the, like, yes, Lord, save many. Would you save many? Um, and deliver us from as much trial and tribulation as, as is, is, is possible. Um, that if you're interested in this concept of the interplay between the church and Israel, Romans 11 is where you want to start. Okay? And, and Paul, an Israelite who's been saved, yearns for the salvation of Israel. And he does see that some of Israel will be saved and will be gathered in. And I believe that that's happening throughout the church age. That some Jewish people are being regathered. So that, that's, that's a thing. That is happening. Others have taken that to be an end time event of like a gathering of, of Israel. I, I don't think that's what Paul was intending there. But he speaks of Israel as kind of having been this um, connected to the vine of the people of God and that God broke them off. And then God grafted onto that vine his New Testament people. And so I think it is appropriate for us as we, as we think about this to heed Paul's warning there, which is to say to all the Gentile converts who are flooding in, do not be boastful. You are saved by grace. And if, if Jewish people are going to be saved, it's going to be by grace. And, and, and to the extent that we would become haughty and puffed up in our salvation, the Lord has broken branches off before. That's, that's sobering. That's a sobering reality. So we want to speak humbly and gratefully about our salvation. Praise God. And may the Lord continue to do that. Um, all right. Well, I'm ready to get back into the notes or to keep answering questions. Either one is fine. So don't feel like you're derailing me. I really thought today would just be a, let's get back together. Let's make sure questions are being answered. I don't need to forge ahead. So let me say that again. I don't need to forge ahead. Got questions? I'll tell you if we're going to have to wait. I've told that to people. And I will say that I, I'm going to... Uh, we're going to expand on these pictures, and you are going to get photocopies of, not my hand drawings, but I've already made them on the computer. Uh-huh. Sure, sure. No, this is um, most normatively, in fact, to be consistent, this is seven years, period. Like, you could put it, you know, starts in 2035 and ends in 2042, kind of like a literal seven years. The, a lot of what we've been doing, I'll give you, I'll give you a secret. All right. Why did we just do the book of Daniel? Because I wanted to have a book that we could all kind of agree on and teach some of the principles of how to look at apocalyptic literature on a book like Daniel, where history's already happened for a lot of that, and we can say, okay, yep, I see that, I see that, I see that. Before we got to Revelation, and I had to turn the world upside down and say there's no rapture. Um, the mindset that insists on interpreting apocalypse literally, is where you get an end-time conversion of Israel, an end-time rebuilding of the temple. Can I emphasize that for a minute? An end-time rebuilding of the temple? Christ is the new temple. When he died, the veil was torn. And because the people of the time insisted on not following him, God sent his 
forever judgment on that old temple. And it was wiped off the face of the earth. And the idea that God's going to go back and have a, a literal temple with sacrifices being offered to God, not the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice that is Christ, is, is a misunderstanding of the whole timeline, the whole picture of Scripture. So, yes, so Jack's question, comment, is that the temples throughout Scripture, it is, the Garden of Eden is spoken of as a kind of temple where Adam and Eve dwelt with God. And a lot of the, the imagery used there, like there's gold, there's jewels, the particular fruits that are mentioned, these are all then taken and used again in the tabernacle as the tabernacle was used, which was made out of gold and had these same fruits in it. And then from the tabernacle, Solomon's temple took these same things. And, and now Christ is our temple. We are God's temple upon the earth. But we're not the ultimate version of this. He's returning again. And when he comes back, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. And it is a very, very large cube. And you might think so. But it is. It's a large cube. And the Holy of Holies in the temple was always a cube. And so this large, as if to say, all of the earth will be the temple. That is what it's saying. All the earth will be the temple. And, and we, will, we will know God face to face. Um, so yeah, that temple theme is there. And, and, and all kind of runs in one direction. Um, and I do think this takes us, just a misunderstanding, but it takes us back the wrong, the wrong way. Um, old references to how God was working in the Jewish nation following the time of Christ. Yeah, I mean, the, the only ones I'm familiar with are in this book, and they are here, and it is primarily... Paul's inspired understanding of what's going on. Of, and what he was struggling with was, did God fail in his old covenant? Like, why did the Jewish people just all turn away from Jesus? And his, his answer is, no, the Lord didn't fail. But, but the people failed to follow the Lord. Um, so after that, in AD 70, the Roman armies came through and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Um, it was, we cannot say if a bomb goes off in some city, this was the judgment of God against that city because of their sin. Cannot say that. We can say this was the judgment of God against Israel because of their sin. Because Jesus said that. Right? So um, that brings up a much bigger theological uh, set of things. It, it, when bombs go off and people die, is that a reflection of God's judgment? Yes. Is it because they were worse than you? No. That's the that's the line right there. That's the yep. Whoa. Okay. Hold on. There's another another line we could have here is judgment. There's a line of judgment that happens, and when there is a tsunami that that takes out hundred thousand people in Indonesia, they are not dying because they were worse than us but they are dying as an expression of the wrath of God to which we would also be subject were it not for Christ
So, so that's kind of the interpretive whatever of, of these things. Okay, so the question is the difference between dispensational theology and covenant theology. Paul's impression, which is right, is that dispensational theology tends to divide up the history of redemption into different ages, times, dispensations. Covenant theology tends to see it more fluid. I would say those are correct characterizations. But if, that's, if those are our choices in terms of characterizing things, I think we're missing it because it is a kind of a both and that there are obviously distinct times in redemptive history. Like once the law came, it was different than before the law came, obviously. Once Abraham had been called out, it was different than before Abraham was called out. The question is not, were there any differences? Yes, there were. The question is, how do we think about those differences, and how sharply are we drawing these lines? So, um, so covenant theology, I hope, rightly understood, does not just blur through every line, nothing's ever changed. That's not the message of covenant theology. Um, I think it's doing a better job understanding the uh, continuity that also exists across the scriptures. So you've got some diversity and you've got continuity. I think, co I think covenant theology holds that tension really well. Dispensational theology tends to over-focus on the differences. I think I just answered that. Excellent. Yes, yes. So probably um, it is past 10, and I'll take questions up here uh, once I dismiss everybody. Um, I think I want to go back to how I started today um, and say the Lord is returning, and that is our hope. And so as we explore some of these things, for some of you, it's going to be disconcerting because it's different than what you've heard before. I understand that, and I don't know how to teach this without confronting that on a certain level, okay? But at the end of the day, I do hope, and Lord, would you do this, that our hope would be in Christ. Listen, this is an, I think this is an error. This is orthodox because it encourages you to put your hope in the coming of Christ. It's still orthodox. If, if, if you're here, great. Then hope in Jesus. And I'm going to hope in Jesus. And we're going to anticipate his coming, and we'll see when we get there. And I know that I'm not going to be right about some things. I know that. I mean, that's how in the world could I have it, have it all right? No, that's not how it's going to. My hope is not that I have it all right. My hope is in Jesus. That's where your hope can be too. All right, so I'm going to close, and you're welcome to come up with any questions. Um, 